Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Um, it is, we are into August, rolling into August. You will be hearing this on August 3rd, but we are recording it on the 1st. Um, so if anything happens between now and then that we sound <laughs> out of disclaimer. touch or whatever, then we apologize. Our usual disclaimer at the beginning of the show. I'm here with Tammy. We have a amazing guest that's going to be coming up in a little bit. Her name is Allie Fowl. And um, Tammy, you and you and Allie worked together at some point or you knew each other through like reporting or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I met What's her. your connection? Yeah, I met her through a friend who is a pod listener, Rena, um, when I was doing some reporting on Myanmar from New York City. And Ali knows everyone, and she's been in Myanmar so long. And um, so, yeah, she's an incredible person to have on, just a journalist who knows all of the things about a place. And uh, we were talking about Myanmar because of this recent slate of executions that happened. Um, and, you know, I don't know, it seems like the, you know, this guy, Ko Jimmy, um, who is a mm -hmm. veteran democracy activist and a writer, uh, was killed. And then, uh, you know, uh, Sky, who, whose music, I think we're going to play in the introduction, you know, in sort of the interlude between the beginning of the show and our interview with Ali. Um, and he was a, you know, he's a rapper, he was an artist, and he was a politician, um, mm -hmm. you know, very close to the, the former government that was overthrown by the military. All of this will be explained to you. In a little bit, um, you know, these are very high profile executions that took place. And we just wanted to talk about it with somebody who really knew the area, the region and um, what was going on, just because I think that there is a sense right now of like something bad is happening in Myanmar and like it's hard to tell what that is. Right. And it's not because For the sure. situation is particularly complicated. It's just because it is not at the top of anyone's docket right now, I think, but um, yeah. I don't know. We make the argument that perhaps it should be, but Tammy is here with me today. Tammy, I'm not going to, I'm not going to rat out where you are right now, but <laughs> it's really weird that you're recording. I'm in a weird location. <laughs> it's weird. You're recording the podcast from there. Um, it's nothing bad or salacious. It's just, I'll just say it's weird that you're there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm leaving for Ohio tomorrow, but I'm doing What are you doing in Ohio? Doing reporting on the economy. Oh, wow. The Ohio economy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You've been doing a lot of travel reporting. That's of sort of not my thing anymore. You know? <laughs> like just stay in your basement? Well, yeah, and read a lot of like academic papers and stuff. Yeah. My days of getting on a plane a lot, um, I don't know. Maybe they'll return at some point, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, You're over it. I'm kind of over it. At the start of the show, I wanted to talk to you about this thing that I was reading about, which, uh, you know, Anna Tong, who is a st uh, reporter for the San Francisco Standard, which is a new publication here in the Bay Area, wrote this profile of this woman who is running for basically uh, the equivalent of what is San Francisco's city council, right? And this mm -hmm. is a group that has quite a bit of power in the city. And I was interested in it. Her name is Leanna Louie, who, the name of the uh, city council. Uh, candidate. And it was interesting to me because it was the first person that I can think of, right, where this sort of movement that we've been talking about a lot on the show <laughs> that I write about quite a bit, which to me is sort of like, I don't know how to, I like, I don't want to put it in a pejorative sense because like, I don't really have, like, I don't feel particularly judgmental about it, right? Like, but it is a reactionary movement, I think, amongst Asian Americans. And it's a response to many things, right? The first is that I think it is a response. I've written about this quite a bit, so if you're familiar with it, then I apologize. But I think the first of it is, you know, sort of grounded in who these people are, right? Like, they're mostly post-1990 Chinese immigrants. They're, this is not like a sort of 1970s, you know, Weishin Ren, like, you know, from Taiwan or, or um, Korean American or or even Vietnamese American group of people, right? Like this is one specific group, Chinese immigrants um, who have come to the United States in the last 30 years or so, right? And um, they have a specific type of politics that is right now being activated by a lot of stuff that's happening, even in places where they don't live right now. So like, for example, one can say like, oh, well, who cares about Lowell High School? or Stuyvesant or Bronx Science or Thomas Jefferson, all these sort of places that are majority Asian test in schools, right? Like that's a local issue. That's a local issue. 
But the reality of it is it's really not. It's partially done by that, and it's partially sort of motivated by by these attacks against Asian people, right? Now, the center of all of this, I believe, is uh, is the Bay Area because you have these extremely high-profile attacks. You yeah. have these two recall elections that took place, right, both of which are linked in a way, like Chesa. So you see, like, a big Asian-American, Chinese-American turnout to have him recalled, especially in mostly Chinese neighborhoods where, like, mm-hmm. you know, the numbers are, like, crazy, who was recall. the district attorney, right? We should say. Right, right. And then you have also the school board recall, which is really centered around like Lowell High School, which is the test in Magnet High School, right? And that decision to end the merit-based uh, admissions there. And so all of that political energy is happening. And one of the questions, I did an episode of The Daily about this, but one of the questions that you end up with is where is this political energy going, Right. Like, where do they go next? And it seems like what they have is they have themselves Leanna Louie to vote for, right? Um, did you did you read up on, on Leanna Louie at all? Yeah, I mean, I definitely hadn't heard about her until you said, and I think as you were just explaining, this does feel much more like a Bay Area issue, like in terms of its kind of localized, you know, um, I guess like manifestation. But I agree that it it seems to speak to something larger. I guess I was curious, like she, so she's running for one board of supervisors position. Does that mean that it's only, it's only that district that would vote for her, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not an at large Asian uh, population. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you, how do you assess her chances? Cause I guess my question was, is this a kind of one-off performative thing that's on the heels of Boudin's recall? And so here's a sort of, candidate that slots in but she's really not going to win or you know is this for real well i don't know if she's going to win or not right because she it's not like she's going to run be running against like a bunch of you know like people who are not also representative of the people at that neighborhood right like yeah she's exactly like she's not gonna be running against like you know like ed white or something like that right but she's gonna be running um but i don't i it it's a the part that's interesting to me is that it's a very real test of that, right? Because yeah. like, there's nothing else, right? Like, there's not like this, the the voice, political voice, mass political voice of Asian America is not like four organized laundry workers working with like, uh, you know, like labor organizers in Chinatown, New York City. I'm sorry, it's just not, you know, like it, this is it. Like, this is the masses, right? If you're talking about Asian America. And so... Leanna Louie, the, her popularity is going to be a great litmus test on what that what the actual level of anger is within these communities, right? Because yeah. you have people like her who are very loud, very angry, right? Very good at getting a lot of attention. And yet, like, I don't know, you know, like, you can say that all of them are not acceptable and they're totally outside of the pale, but then you're sort of saying, like, you know, like, I think that'll only stoke the anger. It's like these selective. Yeah. Right. Although I, I guess I was curious if you could say a little more about that, because I definitely agree with you that a sort of left wing working class, like almost kind of Trotskyist model of Asian America clearly is not ascendant. And <laughs> right. But I also feel like the Leanne Louis are still in the minority compared to just what I consider very mainline Democrat. Asian America, which I think is still a very formidable voting block and sort of like presence in our in our country, as opposed to the Leanne Louise. And that's what I'm most curious about, which is just like how many of those people that you are talking about, just sort of like the standard Democrat, Asian American, mildly mm-hmm. assimilated, yeah. you know, person who votes, right? How many of them have been shifted over in the past few years to a more reactionary, moderate, certainly not Republican, right? But law and order and educational meritocracy type of outlook on life. My suspicion is a whole lot of them, you know, (laughs) but I'm just one person. Pretty Um, grim. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, but I don't know. What is your sense of it? I just don't know any Asian people anymore who like are like not about law and order and stuff like that. I just don't. Whereas before I did. Yeah. I think I I think it's probably what I said in my comment, which is that I think 
well, first of all, like most of the people in my social life are just like leftists. So that's not like a fair representation. But in my reporting life and like my research life, I would say that it, it seems quite split between this sort of mainline Dems sort of lib view and this more working class. Also, like, you know, Viet, like anti-China stuff that we've talked about that is leading towards kind of a more Republican standpoint, not even Democratic like right. centrist standpoint, but more Republican standpoint. So, yeah, I think that conflict is real and it's being rejiggered right now. For me, I still see like the dumb kind of mainline thing as dominant. I think their argument will increasingly just become that this is what a Democrat should be, right? Like that, but it, I don't think it will lead to like a defection from the party in any sort of significant mm-hmm. way. Um, but I don't know. I just found it interesting because I'm always curious about this type of stuff and I feel like the tools that progressive have to stave this off are extremely limited at this time and that um, part of that is also just because I don't think progressives really care about losing the Asian vote. I mean in in New York City this is way less developed than in the Bay right now but we'll see. Are you sure? I that's my impression. I mean, like I can't there's not like an emerging crop of like Eric Adams types Asian Americans right now in in New York City that I am aware of. Okay. Um, okay, well, we are gonna talk to uh Allie now. And um yeah, I don't know. I found this to be an extremely informative yeah. and engaging interview. And so, but in the interim, let's listen to a little bit of the music that um, you know, was silenced this week. really excited today to have a special guest with us. Her name is Allie Fowl, and we got to know each other a couple of years ago when I was doing some long-distance reporting on Myanmar. At the time, Allie was based there for, I think, towards the end of what would be a decade in the country, and she's now back in the UK. Um, You guys might remember that last year when the coup happened in Myanmar, we had a brief mention of it on the show, but um, Jay saw the news come over of the executions this past week, including of Pyo Zayatha and Ko Jimmy, who are two very well-known activists. And so we thought it was a good opportunity to get an update on what's going on in the country. And we're really excited to have Ali to be our guide. Welcome, Ali. Thanks for having me. Hi. Good to see you. And you're a new mom. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yes, I am. Oh, yeah, congratulations. Yes. <laughs> we have lots of like, parents on the show, so Jay can give you advice. <laughs> I, I really can't. Great. Yeah. I'm um, always looking for advice, to be fair. <laughs> it's amazing how much time I spend just like Googling every query I have. It's it's dangerous having the world at your fingertips, really, like with the small child. That is true. Yeah, actually, the only advice I would give is that most of the products that they say you desperately need, you definitely don't need. That, um, there is, a, like, I don't even say this as like some sort of Luddite or traditionalist where you just say, all you need is a swaddling cloth and a bottle. But in the end for this, it's kind of true, you know, like, um, <laughs> or at least that's my experience as like, you know, <laughs> a, as the father, I'm not sure my wife might say differently, but um, yeah, we, we wanted to start this conversation a little bit broadly, right? And we wanted to get people up to speed. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what people's general understanding of or the listener's general understanding of what is happening there. So we might even want to overcorrect a little bit. But if you could just start, you know, by telling us, like, what what has happened in the last, well, let's say, like, two years, right? Like that um, in a and perhaps, you know, like, obviously not everything that has happened. But if you can just give a sort of table setting here um, on on where we're at right now in in the situation in in Myanmar. Sure. Well, um, Myanmar was, until um, February 2021, uh, was ongoing um, a a form of democratic transition. Um, It may have been flawed. um, There may have been uh, several issues with it, but it was um, broadly, I think most people would agree, moving in some positive directions um, in at least the central part of the country. There are obviously um, 
was an ongoing civil war and um and of course the Rohingya genocide which was um you know shows how flawed the country still was but it was broadly moving in a positive direction it was opening up you know there was much more freedom of the press there were um the there was foreign investment the country was developing and um in 2015 um the uh, democracy icon Aung San Suu Kyi had been elected into into government and she'd already been playing a role um, in politics because she'd stood for by-elections in 2012, but 2015 her party won with a landslide. And so they had been in government, at least par- partially, because um, the, the constitution of Myanmar meant that um, there was a sort of a coalition government um, with the, where the the civilian elected government needed to co-govern with the military. Um, sorry, I realize you've said the last two years, but I'm just kind of setting the scene. No, no, so no, it no, was no, it was right, uh, so it, it, things were broadly moving in the right, right direction. Um, the the people, most people you spoke to in the country were pretty happy with the direction things were going. They were still a huge fan of Aung San Suu Kyi. She had obviously lost a lot of favor in the international community and her um, reputation had taken a dent after the Rohingya genocide. Um, But within the country, she was still hugely, hugely popular. And um, then what happened is in 2020, November 2020, um, there was another general election and I think uh, the way I understand it, that the military had just been completely unaware of how unpopular they were, how badly they were going to lose. I don't think they they had really, they had hugely underestimated the popularity of Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, the NLD. And they had been expecting to get at least some seats, try and wield a bit more influence in parliament, get a few more people in top positions. Um, But the NLD won with another landslide, an even larger landslide. And so almost immediately we started hearing um, accusations of voter fraud from the military side. They were obviously realizing that they were losing grip on power they were panicking um you know there was a lot of comparisons to what was happening in the US at the time with Donald Trump the ousting of Donald, Donald Trump and his accusations of 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 election fraud it was the same kind of uh same pattern um and then um February the 1st was due to be the opening of parliament the elections had been in November but Myanmar has this weirdly long gap between elections and the opening of parliament and so in the 1st of February um all the the, the new government was was um set to be elected the new president was going to be chosen and it was going to be the NLD's choice because they had such a large majority um, and there had been rumors of a coup in the week leading up to it, but it was just so, it seemed so illogical and baffling. I mean, the, this whole um, quasi-democracy that we were seeing was very beneficial to all the top leadership. You know, the military still had a huge amount of power. They still had control of many of the ministries. They had huge business investment. They, you know, they had a lot to, to lose uh, and not that much to gain, it didn't seem. And so it really didn't, it seemed like it's for, for me personally, as a reporter who was based there, I thought it was rumors. I did think it was rumors. I thought it was, it seemed, it seemed absurd. And then um, uh, the other reason I didn't think anything was going to happen is that, you know, mili- Myanmar has, has a history of military coups. There, there have been several, well, at least a couple since, um, since independence from, from Britain. Um, and they, um, Normally, there is some movement of uh, troops or or something to kind of indicate that this is going to happen, but we hadn't really seen that. Um, and of course, with hindsight, the reason we hadn't seen that is because this new setup, this new quasi democracy, was all it is all set up in this new capital that was built, um, you know, a, a decade earlier. Napidor, which is where they had moved all of the parliament and all of the um, government seats. So all the important people, all the people they needed to to round up, all these key players, they were already in one of the most militarized areas of the entire country. They were all the MPs lived together 
in a compound. So all the elected parliamentarians mm. were together in a compound surrounded by the military. All the all the government officials were living in their you know, assigned government houses in those areas. And so all they needed to do was round them up. And it was very, very easy. And so it was initially a, a horrifying but quiet and bloodless coup um, because they were able to do that so easily. And then what we did see is a few influential other like other influential figures in Yangon and other parts of the country, um, both politicians but also celebrities, um, activists, people that they felt might be able to kind of uh, you know rally the people, let's say. Um, and so we you know we saw that happening, and there were a few days of, of extreme tension and 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 stress on the streets, and no one really knew what was happening, but but you know. The, the military rule is fresh in everyone's minds. We'd only had 10 years of this democratic transition. Almost all the people had lived under military rule and remembered how brutal the military can be. So there was a lot of nervousness. And then what started to happen is that when nothing brutal had happened, in inverted commas, you know, like nothing, you know, obviously there's brutality in, in these nighttime arrests that had happened. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, no one had to our understanding, being killed at this stage. People were starting to kind of feel maybe they could test the waters. And it started with people banging pots and pans in the evenings to show their objection. And then people started coming out onto the streets, you know, releasing balloons or doing small little examples of protest. And then that grew into an actual movement of a proper protest movement. And in, and and then people started gathering in in tens of thousands hundreds of thousands and initially nothing happened so then the the crowd was emboldened and it felt like a, almost a festival atmosphere and and it and it felt like maybe you know maybe this was going to happen maybe this revolution was going to work maybe the protest movement was going to show the military how unpopular this was how badly they had misjudged this situation um, and that, I suppose that was probably a very, very short lived feeling, um, that lasted until, um, the military decided and, uh, and according to almost all the people I've spoken to, including defectors who've left the military, um, an, an order went out to use lethal force and, and then the crackdown began. Protesters were very violently arrested. People were killed on the streets, um, extrajudicial killings, and people who were arrested were then tortured to death in prison. The brutality just increased and increased. The fear increased. Um, you know, hundreds of people were already in hiding, but more and more people went into hiding. There were more and more warrants out for arrests. Journalists were being arrested, people were being beaten. And the fear just grew to reach this kind of climactic point where I think the protesters decided reasonably quickly that 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 peaceful resistance was never going to be an option. And then what happened is we saw this movement of um, many of the protest leaders and of students and people who had joined what they called the civil disobedience movement, people who were working for government um, offices, people who were working in hospitals, for schools, um, in transport, like the tr um, work, you know, dr train drivers. They were refusing to go to work because the hope was that the the government would i mean the country would cease to function with the military in in government they, they if the people refuse to work under the military they can't run the country and that's what they wanted to do so there were so, many people who joined this civil disobedience movement and now um you know they can't go to their homes because they're at risk of being arrested as well so they and many of the students all moved out to um uh, these frontier areas where there's already a civil war been going on for decades in Myanmar um, and they joined um, many of the different rebel groups and under them they started to um, do some training and um, there are Is various like the, different groups. Thai, like the Thai border region? Yeah, it's both sides actually, but much more on the Thai. But you're talking about the Thai border, you're talking about the China border, and you're talking about the India border. Um, you know, there are different groups. It's it's all around the border areas. 
um and and it's spread you know the 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 people's defense force which is what the main um force is calling themselves um a lot of the elected politicians who had been due to um to form a form a government in parliament uh, have set up their own alternative government now called the NUG um and they have kind of um basically um, endorsed this federal army, the People's Defense Force. There are also other groups that have been um, more independent, smaller groups that have been set up by uh, individual protest leaders who just want to remain slightly separate from from the the NUG government, um, but uh, if- the National, National Unity Government, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say if we could interrupt you for a quick sec. Like, how did you know that it was time for you to leave? Because you'd been there so long. You've been doing such incredible investigative journalism, filmmaking there. Um, was there a trigger moment for you? Um, I think I decided quite early on that I was going to have to leave. Um, but I put it off because, like I mentioned, the initial days weren't as scary as, uh, as you know, it, things didn't escalate as quickly as I was expecting. So I think in the early days of the coup, I'd spoken to other um, foreigners that were living in the country and other people working in journalism, especially younger people, and I expressed my concerns. And I think um, there were, they weren't necessarily shared by everyone um, because especially by people who started covering Myanmar you know, post 2015, although they knew the history of the country, it was slightly different to have not lived it. Whereas I first started working for an exiled Burmese media organization in 2008. So I had been there covering stories of brutality, just in the aftermath of the Saffron Revolution. And I and, and you know, I, I was slightly more directly aware of how quickly things can turn and how brutal the military can be. And I was I was definitely nervous quite early on. So I, I made the decision that I would have to leave quite soon. Um, but then when things started to sort of, um, there were a lot of arrests happening. There was um, the arrest of one of my former colleagues from DVB um, who was live streamed. It was a, he was arrested from his home at the night in the night. And that really scared me. Um, and then a few days after that, I got a call from a, a friend, a freelance journalist who said that they were specifically trying to target people working with foreign media. And at the time, there really weren't that many foreigners in Myanmar. Um, a lot of the larger Western news agencies had already left. So I, I felt very much, I, 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 before that, I'd been a reasonably low profile person because I tend to be behind, behind the camera. Um, but I felt very much in the spotlight. I was doing lives on Al Jazeera. And then I was getting these phone calls and we spent one uh, we, we, you know, decided to leave our house because we were told that there was a, a, a big risk that our house would be raided. As I was an official registered journalist, my address was on, you know, the Ministry of Information had my address. So I, I, I really felt that, you know, that that risk was real. And so we left the house um, and ended up sleeping on the floor of a, of a safe house, um, you know, on a mattress, but it was like not comfortable. And um, as you mentioned, I, uh, you know, I was also pregnant at the time. Um, and then um, yeah. Yeah. when things started to, uh, the violence started to increase, I went out um, to cover some of it from a sort of safe place. Um, and the military were shouting up at us. They could see us filming in, from, from, a, from a height where we thought we were kind of at a safe distance. They started shouting up at us. And the next day I saw video of them shooting up at people filming. Um, and I thought, okay, this is not not okay anymore. And I promised my partner that I wouldn't go out anymore because it wasn't just me that was I was taking the risk for. It was also my my baby. Um, right. So I decided not to go out. And I will say that not going out there and living in central downtown as I did was more unnerving and more frightening because we could hear the noise, but I couldn't see what was happening. And for me, I think I felt like a lack of control and and. I actually felt those few days before we left between um, me reporting on the crackdown and the crackdown escalating, um, you know, they were the worst days for me. I think I was sleeping about two hours a night Mm. and I thought this is not sustainable. So we, we booked our flight around then 
Um, and then a few days before we took the flight, but after we booked it, um, there was the massacre in North Ocala. Um, and, you know, dozens of people were killed. And I think that's when we realized we'd oh made God. the right decision. And actually quite a few people I knew left, left soon after us. So even though I'd been telling people I was going to leave for a while, and some people had, had been kind of questioning that or, or, or kind of thinking that it was maybe a hasty decision, many of them left within weeks of us leaving anyway. So, yeah, it was. I, I was, you know, like one thing that I am, you know, having a hard time grasping just from, you know, reading about this is just, and it's something I think that you would know quite well, is just, you know, like how how stable of a situation is this right now? Because the way that it seems that you've described it, I've also read it in your work, watched it in your work, is this idea that, you know, for all the problems that were happening with the previous government, right, that it was popular, that there was not a sense of, oh, well, maybe, you know, like this was not, and this coup was not something that was always on the horizon that people had a time to prepare for really and to like even maybe even get used to in a way right like which uh, would does sometimes help like uh these types of small you know militarized governments control is just that like this is always how it's always been and it should always be this way right like that that sort of expectation and so you have this you know, what you described as this moment of mass resistance, right? Like where people are flooding in the streets, tens of thousands of people, and yet it's quickly dissipated. And then now what you have is you have these rebel groups and then you have a lot of underground resistance. You have, you know, something that sounds almost akin to like a general strike happening in some sorts of places. Like how, how effective is any of this in in actually sort of cracking the control that the military has over the country right now? Like is, or, or is this something that is going to require some sort of like international intervention? Is this something that's going to require like mass, mass revolution? Like, like where is it right now? Because the way that it's described and I read about it, it feels extremely shaky. And yet I know that that's probably not true. Um, it's a good question, and it's also difficult to judge because obviously, when you speak to people within the resistance movement, um, they are full of positivity, they're full of right. drive, they're full of hope because they have to be because they have nothing else. They've given up everything. They've left their families. They've left their homes. They cannot go home. They have no job opportunities. They have, you know, their future is gone, and so they have to be driven. And sometimes it's difficult to tell whether that is based on reality or whether it is based on that need and that kind of the desperation to maintain the momentum. Um, and getting numbers is difficult too because there are so many different groups and all those groups are um, sheltering within other groups, you know, within these rebel armed groups that some of them don't get on. Some of them right. um, are, you know, separate from another. Like they, they are all roughly you know, working towards the same cause, which is to overthrow the Tamador, the, the Burmese military. But, but you know, they don't always align in other values. They don't always um, ally with one, each, one another. Sometimes there are territory disputes. So there is there are complications that make it difficult. I think one thing that the, um, the underground, that the, the, the armed resistance um, movement are very focused on, um, is this kind of underground um, resistance, which is is reasonably new. It's not, you know, because a lot of this we saw in 88. There was a huge uprising in 1988 and a military coup at the time. Um, and a lot of students um, fled to the jungles. They formed um, the ABSDF, um, which was a student army, um, uh, the All Burma Student Democratic Front, um, and they, um, you know, and they they trained and they went to get weapons, and the idea was that they would come back, and it never really happened. You know, they fought on the frontier, they they fought in the border areas, but it, you know, they never quite managed the goal. You know, achieved the goal that they they went there to achieve, um, and I think that this new generation have learned from that, and they've also got different methods of communication that it's you know yes they're still separated but they are able to communicate there is internet now there's phone lines there's a lot of even in areas where the internet and phone have been cut out 
like in Sagaing, they are still able to contact one another. They have found ways to communicate with walkie-talkies. Other people are getting messages out. That you know, so that there is a, a little bit more unity than there was in the past. And they're very, very focused on targeting cities. So that's one of the interesting things. They're targeting government buildings, administrative buildings. They're targeting uh, crony-run businesses um, that they see as financially supporting the military. They're targeting these um, places that they they think will make it harder for the country to function, which is a similar thing to this this civil disobedience movement, how that started. They're trying to make it difficult. So it's not just a war. It's not just a guerrilla war in the jungles. It's also, um, you know, making day-to-day life less than normal because they don't want this coup to be normalized. They want people living in cities to feel like something is different. They want the country to remember that this is not what they want. This is not the life that they asked for. This is not, you know, uh, what they're hoping for. And they also want to spread out the uh, the military resources because if there are um, bombs going off in the cities, uh, the military send the troops in to protect those areas. Um, they send the troops in to protect, mil- to, to protect government buildings. And then they don't have uh, troops on the front lines and they don't, they, they have fewer resources to send out to the areas where the battles are raging. Um, so, you know, it's it's difficult to tell how successful it will be because it's all over the place and there's so many different fronts. And there's, you know, there are also these areas in central Myanmar where they have um, pockets of control. The NUG government are running schools. They are, right. they've, they, they've declared um, that they, uh, they ad- administer those areas. And that's also the areas or, or, or the fringes of those areas where we're seeing the most extreme atrocities. Now, this is central Myanmar. This is, you know, not um, an area with a, a history of civil war or um, or ethnic minorities that um, have been persecuted for a long time. These are, um, you know, I suppose it's the heartland of NLD supporters, really. But also probably the military would think of it as the heartland of of. of military recruitment as well these are the kind of areas where people um you know it would be reasonably easy to recruit people to um to the military because they're people who need jobs and you know they're Burma which is the majority ethnic group in 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 Myanmar and um and yes and that area is you know they're burning down villages their entire villages and and an aerial attacks in in these areas it's crazy and uh, there's also been huge number of aerial attacks in the in um in the frontier areas in karen and kachin uh, sorry karen and kareni areas um, i you know from an international standpoint right like because i remember when um you know like uh like ong sang suchi was you know brought in right the narrative was that here is uh somebody who is who is friendly with the West, right? Like this is somebody who's educated at Oxford. This is the line that you hear heard all the time. And, you know, like very photogenic and, you know, speaks many languages and, you know, almost seems regal, right? (laughs) In a type of way and is going to, is going to sort of transport this, you know, and this is not my words, but the way it was discussed at the time is going to transport this backwards country, this sort of like, you know, insular country that was always in the shadows and nobody has even been to, right? And it's going to transform it into this modern democracy, right? Um, and I was, I was curious about, you know, like given that many of the incentives for international um, intervention are going to be based economically, right? Or they're going to be based on in some sort of relationship that they have with leadership, right? Um, like what, 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 how has that changed since the, since the coup, right? Like what, how is it, how has it changed from, um, a, you know, like this sort of Western friendly, like it, it is, is the military like somehow more friendly to the West in ways that we don't know? Like why, why has there not been like a huge international outcry over what's happened? Um, I think, uh, I mean, certainly the military is not friendly to the West at all. Right. I mean, I, there's no engagement there in any way. And I think that these, 
the the executions recently have shown they there's no room for negotiation that they're not speaking to anyone there's a a small amount of dialogue with like ASEAN for example um Mm -hmm. and 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 with neighboring countries and obviously Min Aung Lang um the commander-in-chief um seems to have some sort of um sordid relationship with Russia at the moment as well so that's also worrying but generally you know other than like going to Russia to talk about um, defense strategies um, you know that there is really no engagement happening at all and um, so um, no, it's definitely not that um, I right. think the issue is that um, you know I Without someone like Aung San Suu Kyi, this kind of figure of, um, well, as you say, she's well spoken. You know, she speaks Queen's English. She's educated right. at Oxford. She she's regal and and you know very poised. And she you know she was incredibly beautiful when she like um, she's still incredibly beautiful, arguably. But uh, you know all of these things that made her like this perfect icon. Um, they're missing now, right? We, of course, there are some very influential and inspiring um, public figures now involved with the national unity government, the NUG, but we don't. They don't have the same gravitas. They don't have that same influence, and and many of them have been educated abroad and do speak English, um, but they are dealing with something far messier because they don't really have control. You know, they they want to, and they are they they're doing very well at providing an alternative, and you know, presenting themselves in areas where, you know, the military won't have dialogue. I saw recently they opened a, a an office in, um, in uh, in Australia. You know, they, there's 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 a sort of acknowledgement that they exist from from a few a few small countries and a few individuals. Um, but it's complex. And they also now have an armed wing, which makes it even more complex. So sending them money isn't the same as it was now. That's right. arguably supporting a military movement, um, which, you know, it's it's no matter how noble the intentions, it is not, these are not well-trained people. These are not people with military experience. This does not have a clear... Um, hierarchy or oversight or leadership it's messy there are people playing by their own r- rules and so funding it is dangerous because you don't know how it's going to turn out and I think that's you know diplomacy is always um, obscured by caution and I think that they don't I, I don't think the international community see much benefit in it from for them there isn't enough interest from the international community right. is in the media isn't really covering it that you know it doesn't feel like something um that the world is outraged by in the way that they are with ukraine or with other um global crises um and so uh, you know they can get away with doing nothing and it's well, all why, cyclical you know they why, why do you think that is like why is there you know like because i was struck by that too because you know it's like you have these like you said you have these entire villages that are destroyed, right? Um, and that uh, you have a, um, oh, I don't know, you have you have executions. I think it's something like, you know, hundreds and hundreds, over 800, I think, right? Or, or is what's been tracked so far of people who have just been executed. Shot in the streets and, right? yeah, killed right. in custody. Um, yeah. And that people generally think that number is much higher, right? And yet the international outrage, I think over the Rohingya right now, it, it could be for perfectly valid and proportionate reasons, but I thought it was much higher than, um, you know, than the overthrow of an entire country, especially one that, you know, just very recently had been this sort of, like we said, like this beacon, like, oh, now it's going to be opened up. And then this coup happens and then it's silence. I've just found that so odd, you know, like, I mean, am I mischaracterizing the situation in a bit? Because the only way, the only time I ever heard about it as somebody who is like interested in Asia, but certainly is not an expert, was really just during what, uh, the the Rohingya, um, you know, like what was happening with the Rohingya, and then what that meant about this beacon of sort of like Western Oxford, in, uh, you know, like Oxford educated uh, Western democracy or whatever. But like, well, why, why, like, why is why do you think there is so little attention paid to this right now? I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I do think that part of it is that it's been eclipsed by other stories that have 
you know, are, are grabbing more global interest. Right. I think that the the world is terrified by the Ukraine situation because of the, the the implications that that has. I don't think people see this this conflict spilling beyond Myanmar borders. And so, although maybe it has some regional significance, generally, it's kind of like you know, people. It's not their problem. You know that I think there's always an element of that. I think a large part of it is just the visuals, you know, like, um, you know, you say that the Rohingya um, crisis got a lot of coverage. That crisis had been going on for a long time and no one cared at all until hundreds of thousands of people fled the country and there were drone for those drone footage of them crossing over into into Bangladesh and they were were arriving with videos of their of their um villages being burnt down and you know it was there was so much content and everyone was so horrified um but you know we'd many people who'd been covering Myanmar had been talking about this for many years and um, it had been slow burning and all the warning signs were there and and no one was interested. And then suddenly they were. And and the other reason I think is, as you mentioned, it was this fall from grace of the of the icon of democracy. Like people were so yeah. horrified and baffled that they made them more interested, especially when Aung San Suu Kyi made the decision to turn up at the ICJ. And then she was representing the military and that's how people saw it. And they were it brought even more attention to that story. Um, and you know, think, just like yeah. sorry to interject, I just think that like looking at international reactions, it seems like that process of Aung San Suu Kyi being criticized and being sort of degraded in the eyes of the international community also set up a situation in which Myanmar, in some sense, passed from a sort of democratic beacon into a kind of roguish state. And I think in some ways that produced a situation where then when the coup occurred, it was perhaps less surprising or something. There was something in which you it had already kind of changed in the way that people were perceiving it in the way that the West thought it could influence the state. Um, so I've been wondering whether that it's, it, these are related processes. Yeah, I think um, certainly, um, I think one thing the military um, learned from, or, or thought they learned from the Rohingya crisis was that they could continue doing what they wanted and no one was really going to do anything about it. Right. And, you know, and but that's in a way why I I found the coup itself so surprising because they had this perfect setup. They had a civilian yeah, leader right. who was taking the fall for them and who yeah. was representing them, and they were just doing what they wanted. She had, you know, uh, like of course, arguably she could have spoken out more. She, you know, I mean, she she certainly could have spoken out. She's but yeah. and arguably she could have tried to negotiate with them more, and she could have tried to engage with them more. I, you know, obviously her apologists will say, look at what's happened. She had no influence over the military at all. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um but you know, I mean, like there was more that could have that that there was possibly more that could have been done but in the end she has no control over the military they do what they want and and they had learned that they could do what they wanted and people would be annoyed with her and then they could kind of carry on you know they have their own legal system they don't even if military personnel aren't even subject to the civilian laws in Myanmar Mm. they have a martial law system they don't you know they can any crime committed by military personnel is is prosecuted separately so they they continued with impunity and i think that they felt they were able to do that i don't think that that is what drove the coup necessarily because i you know they didn't really need it i yeah. genuinely think that was driven just by the greediness of of minong line but maybe it added to his just i can do what i want attitude mm. um and i also think um i i think he must have um, misjudged the reaction. I don't think he was expecting or, you know, or misjudged how people were going to react mm-hmm. um, because uh, I think he must have looked to neighboring countries. He might have looked at the soft coup that happened in Thailand and how Thailand continued to be an incredibly yeah. affluent country with a huge, with a roaring tourist industry right. and um, a lot of investment. And they, you know, thought, well, we can do that. You know, we can just 
like have a coup. We can, I'll be in charge because I want to be the boss. Um, the election system didn't work. So we'll do it this way and we'll just carry on because now the country's opened up. We've got all this foreign investment. And I don't think he realized how unpopular it was going to be, how much resistance there was going to be and how disastrously the country was going to react and, and how you know, making it arguably impossible to govern and certainly difficult to continue with with all the investments. The sanctions have been slapped back on. He must have misjudged it. Yeah. Uh, how much foreign investment has left, uh, you know, in the past, past, I don't know, like the past two years? A large amount. A large amount. I mean, like, obviously, there's sanctions have been reinstated by um, several different countries. Um, and, and, uh, you know, a lot of foreign companies especially small foreign countries don't want their personnel there anymore um and i mean but we've seen in quite a lot of places and this also happened um following the independent the the coup in 1962 in 1962 actually um uh which was the first kind of um proper coup there was arguably a coup coup a few years earlier when um so, some people don't like to say that 62 was the first coup but you know um it's officially the first coup and um my grandparents were actually living in Myanmar at the time of that coup um and oh, wow. they um they were asked to leave because the entire country was nationalized after um after the um took over um but what they did was they kept on a lot of um personnel and um you know there was a lot of infrastructure in place something reasonably similar has happened this time but you know what what nowadays there's a a lot more focus on training local staff right so when foreign companies have come in they haven't just brought in their foreign staff they have um tried to build capacity in the country they've tried to train people they've built infrastructure you know so for example a good example is the um the telecommunications there was you know, there was a nominal amount of telecommunications in the country when I first arrived there in 2012. SIM cards were still hundreds of dollars. Um, They're prohibitively expensive for most people. There was one uh, telecommunications company. Then they put out a bid to international companies and Telenor on Urdu moved, uh, won them, uh, two huge international global um, telecommunications brands. They moved into the country. They built... Uh, they built, built telecoms towers all around the country. They improved, you know, they went straight to 4G data, like having had had nothing. So the, the data in certain parts of Myanmar is better than it is where I am now in the UK. It's faster. Yeah. It's, you know, speedy. They set up all of that. And then after the coup happened, um, because telecommunications is a huge part of control, security issues, um, they were under huge amounts of pressure from the military to give over information they didn't want to. Telenor made the decision to leave. Um, they then got pressure on their local staff. They got pressure on the international staff that were still in the country. It made it. It became very clear that they needed to go straight away. So they 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 cut and run, having invested millions in this country, having invested millions in the people, having invested millions in the infrastructure. And so yes, the a lot of foreign investment has left but they will still see some benefit from that um, okay. which you know is is in, in many ways good for the people in telecommunications arguably also has a very negative effect for the people because um there are now well the uh, urdu has also announced they're going to leave so there's um uh, there's another there's the state-run mpt and then there's um uh mitel which is a Vietnamese but in collaboration with the military so it's kind of um mm. yeah basically they will have control over all the companies that are left um this wow. is the really you know for me at least the last question here which is about telecommunications is something that you you know in recent we're going to link to this but in a recent short documentary that you made a lot of it is sort of about telecommunications cell phones information and the way in which people might be being tracked in some sort of way for their activity. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about that a bit because, you know, I was really struck in watching your documentary by, A, how the military uses the media, right? Like where you have these sort of announcements that are on, you see a guy, you know, sitting at what looks like an anchor desk. And then he says, everything that you've heard is a lie, you know? And by the way, these people are all wanted, right? Like, I mean, it was chilling to watch, um, like legitimately chilling to watch. And then on the other side, as your own reporting has shown, 
right, that there are some Western companies that are selling services to the military government that will allow them to track people's phones, to track their activity and perhaps see where they are even, right? Um, yeah, can you can you just give a sense of how like this sort of connectedness of this country, this new, you know, like people now having 4G data as opposed to before when they, you know, had nothing, right? Like this sort of technological you know, wave that has hit them all at once as opposed to other countries that, you know, definitely had, you know, huge shifts, but certainly could ease into it a little bit more. How, how is, how is this sort of working in, in this, in this, uh, in this situation right now? Like how, how, how is technology, um, and communication sort of, you know, at the center of all of this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, it certainly plays a role, um, in the resistance movement because it allows, um, people who are in hiding and, um, otherwise underground to still communicate with people. Um, so, um, some of the people who have warrants out for their arrests because for the very reason that they're seen as influential, um, people that might be able to rally, um, the general population, um, they haven't actually been silenced because they're able to post videos and, um, send out messages. So in a way that that's, that's playing a big role. Um, and, um, I do think the, the sheer amount of, um, communication and social media, um, has made the way that the country surveils people. I mean, I think it's, they haven't, they're certainly having a go. There's a, and there's a sinister, side to all of this but I think it's overwhelming for the government right now they used to just tap a phone and very few people had phones so it was easy to do it and you could normally tell because there was a little click on the you know they weren't very subtle about it (laughs) but that's what they did they would get someone to track you they'd get someone to you know they're used to surveillance but they did it in this very kind of crude way and now um I think we've seen them not really know how to cope. So when the military, when the coup first happened um, in February 20, um, the first of February, um, they cut off all communication. They cut off the internet. They cut off the phone. People couldn't communicate at all. Um, And then they realized that that was impossible because banks don't work without telecommunications. You can't cut off the internet and still have a functioning economy in this day and age because they've completely reformed the banking sectors and they now rely on um internet connection so they right. tried to work out a way of doing it so that they could reduce communication but still have the banks function so they were cutting it off as soon as the banks closed you know and and through the night the internet wasn't working in the day it was working so oh that the banks God, could function wild. wow so then that was their solution yeah. yeah it's yeah i mean it's crazy and then they managed to right. learn they learned how to to block certain sites they blocked uh, Facebook, but Facebook is still so widely used. I mean, it's really I was say, that's the main, the main way, mechanism, right? Absolutely, it's the w- main way that people communicate um, in Myanmar is Facebook. You'll you'll meet a government official; they'll give you their Facebook page or their Facebook Messenger address instead of a, an email address. Uh-huh. It is, you know, people often say Facebook is the internet in Myanmar. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's there are many reasons, but part of it's because they used to give. Um, these data packages that, were, that had free Facebook usage. And so right. I think that was just like the way, you know, so for example, if you put a YouTube video up, people will rarely watch it. If you put a Facebook video up, it can get shared very, I mean, it will, it's much more likely to go viral, for example. Um, and so, yeah, Facebook was blocked. Um, but the military, the government is still posting messages on Facebook because it's the main way to communicate with people. So if the Ministry of Health needs to post something about covid they still post things on facebook so that you know and and most people can still access it because now the entire country just has a vpn because that's how they've had to 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 work around it and and i know there are all sorts of things happening behind the scenes and i don't want to play down um you know what they're likely to achieve and how good their surveillance is because certainly we at least know that they have been looking abroad for um the technology to to improve this we know that they are still close with china china is their nearest neighbor and china is extremely good at this kind of thing so you know i i don't think we should underestimate um the way in which they deal with it but certainly initially um it it felt like it was it was chaotic and they didn't really know 
how to deal with it and they didn't know how to stop there was there's so much communication now that they didn't know how to kind of rein that in and i think yeah, that it's, it's, it's being used efficiently by this tech savvy new generation yeah. the young generation right. is leading the revolution and they they are tech savvy they know what they're doing great um tammy do you have any other questions here yeah like, just I mean, really quickly ellie was curious so obviously we got started bringing you onto the show because of these very high profile executions over the past week mm-hmm. um we'll link to some of the music from Poseatha and of course code jimmy is a very um, well-known veteran democracy activist um what does it mean to you that the military is now willing to take such actions as these that are like recognizable to the international community that are like targeting the most sort of celebrated activists of their generation I, I think it's just it's just so devastating. I can't really put into words how I feel about it. I think, I mean, one thing I, I genuinely think it shows is that there is just no room for negotiation with this government. Mm-hmm. I think that um, it's, uh, well, this regime, uh, you know, like I, I think yeah. it, it shows that they don't have, I, I mean, I honestly don't understand why they would do it because it seems to have emboldened people you know I think people who were just trying to get on with their normal lives because it's been a year and a half and they need to earn a living and they need to survive now have been re um re-emboldened by this they've just realized how cruel this government is because these are incredibly popular figures and you know Zayathor I knew him well um in the years I lived in Myanmar because he was a, a very open and and accessible politician he was which is rare in Myanmar a lot of politicians in Myanmar even uh, you know once a part of the the National League for Democracy which of course is this kind of um you know de- pro-democracy movement and 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 you, you know you'd think that they would be open and easy to talk to but a lot of them are very old a lot of them are old-fashioned and conservative and and Zayathor was open and friendly and in touch with the youth and he bridged a, a, a gap for a lot of people between kind of popular culture and politics and he was able to reach out to many people and he always answered his phone and he uh you know he was very yeah. humble and he never um kind of he always passed you on to someone else because he never f- felt that he was important enough to speak to but he was always helpful and would suggest someone good and um give you information and he you know he was great and he was um the parliamentary secretary for um uh, Aung San Suu Kyi so he was also incredibly close to her and you know I, I really genuinely thought he was the future um of the country and Kojimi also just so influential so popular and it's just I mean honestly such a horrible decision and so quick and so Hades you know we don't even know how it happened or when it happened or where it happened exactly there's so little information um and this you know these heartbreaking accounts of um the prisoners being allowed to meet their family and talking about you know can you bring me this book and can you bring me my glasses and you know obviously having absolutely no idea what was going to happen and what was coming. Um, and I just, you know, it makes me think about that moment when they will have realized what's happening to them and how terrifying it is for them. And I, and I just, but it just, it's been a real wake up call. I think to realize this regime should not be underestimated. Um, they, you know, they should, they, they are not open to negotiation and, and yeah, if, if, if we want things to change something, there needs to be something more, I don't really know how to phrase it without, uh, but, you know, something more dramatic or something more decisive to happen. You know, the pressure needs to be real um, because this does not feel like a situation that's going to change. And there were, there are dozens more people on, on death row. There are, you know, these are not the only people who are facing the death penalty and um, people haven't been sentenced to death since the late eighties in, in Myanmar. So this is, um, you know, there are, as we've mentioned, lots of extrajudicial killings, um, in Myanmar regularly, but, um, but, uh, this, you know, an official execution like this, um, is, it's something new. It's something extremely sinister and it, and it's, I suppose they're trying to scare people 
I, I, I can't think of any other reason that they would do it. They're trying to show people that they mean business. They're trying to take the people they see as the most potentially influential, um, the, the most, um, you know, sadly, it's the people who would be the future leaders and the people who could could make real change in Myanmar that you know they're trying to get rid of anyone who yeah, that's what it feels like yeah yeah who can who can make that or certainly with the the two high profile ones right. I think um you know that's that's the kind of message they're sending and it's 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 devastating well um yeah that's well thanks for thank you for coming on um this was extremely informative i think uh it's something that our listeners and also just me personally really appreciate which is just you know um first of all just the expertise but also you know really i do think this is something that the public here in the united states should be way more interested in um and i do i i do think that there is some shift i mean i you know the reason i started thinking about it again was just because you know times ran a very long obituary about um you know about about these executions very long lengthy piece and i think that um perhaps like it has triggered some sort of awareness just because these were such high profile figures but um you know obviously attention is fickle but um you know so hopefully this will spur something else but thank you for coming on again and um yeah we'll hopefully have you on again thanks for your work ellie Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to our show. Uh, We do this every week. You can support us at goodbye.substack.com. You'll have access to our Discord uh, server. And, you know, I don't know what's going on there right now. I just go in and I try and talk about Korean dramas. You're watching Attorney Woo, right? I haven't. I, I'm. I'm like half an episode in. Oh, you're gonna love I don't it. Have, I can't figure out the time to do yeah. it. Honestly, I mean, not because I'm so so busy, but because like I've just like I don't know. You're kind of busy. Know, how how do you watch television? How does one watch television? It's like a. I how do people watch these entire shows? It just seems so. I don't know. I, it's like, <laughs> it's two I weeks after Jay binged one. <laughs> I can't gear myself up to like do it anymore. Um, yeah, I have selective. It's a lot. I have, like, selective Will you do it. your fast forwarding? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Um, okay, well, right. um, we will see you next week. <laughs>